Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 12, Small Gods. Not big gods. Small Not gods. big gods. There are big gods in this novel, but we're, we're here to talk about small gods. Yeah. So Small Gods is the 13th Discworld novel. And our 12th episode, bizarrely. And our 12th episode, because we need to keep people on their toes. Yeah, there was a comment on the Discworld Reddit where it was like our sixth episode, we were, whatever our sixth episode was, or discussing the sixth Discworld book or something, and someone was like, what the hell, that makes no sense. And I'm like, oh yeah, Tessa just came up with this like bonkers shotgun order for the Discworld books. <laughs> but yeah, I was like, this is just bonkers. Eventually, we are going to get to a point where we're just reading them in publication order. <laughs> oh, that's disappointing. It actually does work eventually, the way that they were published. But the first part, you, you have to go out of order, which was actually underscored to me because I posted about Discworld. I did a Ask Me My Top 3 thing on Twitter. I guess when this episode comes out, it'll be a couple of days before this episode comes out. Our friend of this podcast and Monkey Off My Backlog, Elise. Oh, hello, Elise. She asked me for my top three Discworld books. And so I gave her the top three. And she asked if any of them were good starting places because she had tried starting Color of Magic and was not interested. Like it did not grab her in any sort of way. So I think that that still proves my point that if you're trying to get somebody hooked on Discworld, do not start them with Color of Magic unless they're like a real sword and sorcery fan, like somebody who actually knows all of those references that he's making. Yeah. I feel vindicated. Anyway, so this novel, Small Gods, was published in 1992, and it is the second of what is considered by many Discworld fans to be a loose duology called Ancient Civilizations, along with the book Pyramids. So while the main characters of Pyramids do not show up in this book, and there are some people from Jelly Baby in this book, but it's not like a main setting like it is in Pyramids, people tend to group these two together because of their location on the Discworld, but also because some of the themes there were two adaptations of this book that I could find. There was one in 2006 where it was adapted as a serial for BBC Radio 4. It starred Patrick Barlow as Om, Carl Prekop as Brutha, and Alex Jennings as Vorbis. Anton Lesser was actually the narrator of that version. There was also a stage version of Small Gods that was adapted in 2010, and it was produced by Ook Productions and members of the Durham Student Theatre. And I thought you had to appreciate this, Nigel. All the profits from that ad adaptation were donated to the Orangutan Foundation. I love that. I love that. You know, students putting on productions and donating profits, I'm, I'm all about that. All about it. So, short summary of this book. In Omnia, everyone knows that there's only one god, the great god Om. The time of his eighth prophet is near, but no one is expecting that eighth prophet to be the novice Bratha, certainly not Bratha himself. And Bratha never expects that the god would appear to him as a tortoise, taking him on an adventure that opens Bratha's mind to the possibilities of philosophy, art, and desert cuisine. But Bratha seems to be the only one who still believes in Om, and everyone knows what happens when people stop believing in gods. What were your first thoughts about this novel, Nigel? I really liked it. It's not my favorite of the Discworld novels. But I definitely really enjoyed it. I think there was a, a couple of pacing issues. 
and just like how the plot moved that I didn't enjoy, which is why I ended up not giving it as high a rating as other books. I gave it like a four star rating on Goodreads. Overall, like net positive. I was definitely uh, a net positive for Small Gods. I really loved the book. So it compares favorably to something like Pyramids. Oh, I hated Pyramids. Right. You you disliked Pyramids. Do you think the pacing issues in Small Gods are similar to the pacing issues in Pyramids or not as bad? Like what's your, since these two books are often grouped together, what's sort of your comparison between the two? Do you know what I think it is? I think that Small Gods is exceptional in so many other ways so that therefore like in contrast the pacing is more glaring whereas i had other problems of pyramids and so the pacing wasn't nearly as big a problem compared to my problems with the actual plot and characters of pyramids i actually have a really hard time figuring out where exactly to start talking about this book because there are so many threads and all the threads are very interconnected like one of the things i'll say about this book is that all of the storylines are very tightly focused on one thing, which is this religious examination. Terry Pratchett actually said in interviews about Small Gods that he received fan mail from both atheists and Christians about Small Gods, and both of those groups of people claimed Small Gods as being on their side. Like, some, a lot of atheists saw it as like a religious satire, a lot of Christians saw it as being like ultimately about viewing religion as being more for the congregation, about empathy, about mercy, that kind of thing. And so I find that fascinating, this idea that this he wrote this book, which is very much invested in interrogating religion, and yet like a very broad swath of religious viewpoints find something to either agree with or something that speaks to them in this book. First, I wanted to ask you, what is your religious background, Nigel? And second of all, like, what do you think this is a satire or do you think it's a loving satire? Like, what's your take on Pratchett's view of religion in this novel? Well, I mean, like, of course, it's a satire. It's a Discworld book. That's my take. There's nothing in Discworld that's ever played dead serious. There is no book, even books about where the main character is literally death. None of those are ever played straight down the center. So yeah, it's a satire, but like, I think it's intentionally vague in whether it's a benevolent or kind of like critique satire, purely for the reasons that end up with both Christians and atheists sending mail to Terry Pratchett, because Terry Pratchett isn't someone like Terry Brooks or... Terry Goodkind, weirdly fantasy authors named Terry, have for the most part a bad rap, uh, except for Terry Pratchett, in terms of like having like nuclear fucking takes <laughs> where they just like put a load of politics in. And this kind of gets into this whole discussion that we're having now where a lot of authors, uh, fantasy authors who are from underrepresented backgrounds and ethnic groups are writing stories based off of their mythological traditions and stuff. You know, I'm thinking of like Rebecca Kwong with the Poppy War series or Marilyn James with Black Leopard, Red Wolf or, oh, what's his name? Evan Winters with the the Burning Quartet, the Rage of Dragons. It was, it, it was even brought up with Samantha Shannon's 
fantasy book, The Prior of the Orange Tree, which is like, does a fantasy world need to mirror real world patterns of oppression? And I think this is the closest the closest it's gotten because yeah there's economic commentary in especially like the city watch books but this is like a very specific form of oppression and like i mean i was raised catholic i was baptized made my communion and confirmation in the catholic church despite the fact that i didn't really believe in it but i was in a catholic school and that's how i was raised and it was never like aggressively put upon me i mean society um it Society in Ireland is very aggressively shaped by the Catholic Church because Eamon de Valera made the laws in concert with a bishop. And so, like, there's a lot of religious trauma in Ireland from the long, long shadow that the Catholic Church has cast. But it's not, it's not something I've directly experienced, but I am very aware of it. And so, like, I'm by no means minimizing or erasing that. It's just... My religious background was I never really believed in it, so I just kind of didn't engage with it. But that's how I was raised and the environment I was in. It's a very long-winded answer, I apologize. But yeah, I made I made the sacraments. Yeah, is there anything about religion that's not a little long-winded? Like I feel like every time we have to talk about something like this, it, it requires a lot of I like to talk a lot about Ireland. Being Irish, and specifically from Westmeath, is a large part of my personality. Um, I, and see, I come from like a very different background of yeah. religious trauma. You got oh, that spicy what I like to religious call it. trauma. I, am, I come oh. from a... Yeah, I do. I was raised by fundamentalist evangelical Christians oh, in stinky. the Midwest. Like and... Yeah, they're still and they're still there in the Midwest being fundamentalist evangelical Christians. And so it took me a long time. I was raised in that. Like we went to church three times a week. Like I my my family's entire social life was was revolved around the church and religion and you know, I had to learn I I mean at one point I probably had like half of the Bible memorized. I, I'm definitely lapsed. I, I am no longer, I no longer consider myself religious. In fact, I have a lot of anger about, you know, the way I was raised and a lot of, you know, regret and shame about, you know, different aspects of my personality that came from that. I had to unlearn a lot of that in my adulthood, but it doesn't mean like I, I'm, I'm not like a militant atheist. Like I'm not like, oh, nobody should be religious. Like I respect a lot of people who are religious. You're not Richard Dawkins. Yeah, I'm not... I respect a lot of different people. I probably respect you more if you're not Christian, <laughs> like if you're a different religion than I do Christianity just because of my background. But I do know a lot of uh, people who are Christians who do Christianity in a way that I can respect. So it's not like I'm anti-Christian per se. Yeah. I just I do have a lot of beef with Christianity. And so a book like Small Gods, the darker parts of it, I think, speak to me a little bit more than perhaps the the lighter parts that I think maybe those Christian fans were were connecting with in their fan mail to uh, Terry Pratchett. But that's that's kind of my experience yeah. going in is that I'm here for all the religious satire. I love Good Omens, which also has a lot of elements of religious satire to it as well. Like, I mean, as well, I, you know, as long as your religious belief isn't actively harming people, then I'm fine with it. Like, I mean, my granny was very religious. And also, I mean, because of the fact she was born in 1950s Ireland, so she would have been raised hand in hand with the atmosphere 
of the Catholic Church that has led to so much trauma, um, like the Magdalene Laundries and, you know, mother and baby homes and that kind of thing. Um, the church as a basically like oppressive, nearly like big brother kind of thing. It was always there, always watching, always judging, you know, but she was also like, I mean, she attended church to the day she died, you know, and w- was like a big name in kind of the local church community. But she was also like very, compa- like, obviously I'm going to say my granny is compassionate, you know, because family ties, but also like she wasn't strictly held to a lot of fundamentalist Christian beliefs and stuff. You know, like she voted yes to legalize same-sex marriage in Ireland. Uh, I don't remember the date of the abortion referendum, but she wouldn't have voted to legalize abortion. But that was a personal thing, not strictly on a religious grounds. And it's fine. You can have personal objections. That, that's fine. But she wasn't going out and campaigning and saying, like, no, you're killing babies. It was just, you know, it was just a personal thing. And I was like, yeah, I can respect that especially like especially because like I, this feels explicitly christian and maybe that's because terry pratchett is a british writer coming out of the landscape of like this is uh mm. the 90s in britain you know there probably was not a lot of beliefs outside of christianity and probably buddhism i think buddhism is one that kind of like is easy to take root in other countries you know like Judaism and Islam are kind of they're harder to become culturally accepted I think in predominantly Christian backgrounds is what I've seen I could be wrong please don't take this as a statement of fact and if this is not the case please do tell me but you know because like there's a lot of kind of Buddhist parallels in characters especially like Lobsang and things like that you know and it, there's a lot of um Buddhist influence in Pratchett's other works like The Long Earth and even in Good Omens. And I have to wonder what was Terry Pratchett's faith background. But like this seems explicitly Catholic, especially because Vorbis is the head of the Quisition. Vorbis gives me really big Frollo from Hunchback of Notre Dame vibes. Oh my god. Yes. I love Judge Claude Frollo as a villain because he's so utterly despicable. You know, like it's like that's spot on what a, a villain should be like in the first minutes of the film he kills a person outside of a church you know like that's that's exactly the vibe that they should go for and they did it really well i'm not defending anything that claude frollo does in the film but as a villain he's he works exceptionally well for the story they're trying to tell of the weaponization of faith and the marginalization of people who don't fit inside the the church's auspices. The only difference I think between like Vorbis as a character and Frollo as a character is that Vorbis comes off as very sexless. He's not like Frollo is like, so does every old ish kind of man in Terry Pratchett. That's fair. Um, Yeah. Because Frollo is is, not as much as the wizards, but right. He's a step between like the younger generation and the old wizards of the unseen university. Like, I was about to say Ridcully, but out of all of the arch chancellors, Ridcully is the one who de- who seems the most likely to have had sex. You know, like that that oh, that yeah, graph that's like knows what sex yes. is, fucks. <laughs> Doesn't know what sex is, fucks. Like Ridcully is knows what sex is, fucks. Yes. Uh, Galder Weatherwax is doesn't know what sex is, fucks. Yes. Cut Angle doesn't know what sex is, doesn't fuck, and then. Is there a no- Wazy B? Wazy B is knows what sex is, doesn't fuck. Um, 
Because he doesn't have a chance to. There we to. go. Yeah. He doesn't have a chance to. Forever in our hearts, yeah, for- our Chancellor Wazy Goose. <laughs> R.I.P. Wazy Goose. So I, I do want to talk about Vorbis some more, but let's let's back up a bit because, yeah, I think the Church of Om, which is a national church, right? The church runs the nation of Omnia. It yeah. So it's a theocracy in that way. It, to me, does give me large Catholic vibes. It does have some elements of Islam woven into it, especially the idea of like having multiple prophets that that come and, and dispense the word of Om. That, to me, reads very much like Muslim beliefs about, you know, the ways in which God has spoken through different prophets throughout history. Yeah, like Muhammad is the prophet, but he's not the only prophet. Well, like Abraham is a prophet. Moses was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. That's that is all, you know, part of the 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 Muslim faith. So I think that there are some threads between those two religions because those two are like I think when we think of monotheistic religions, we think about Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Judaism, though, is not a it's not a religion that see actively seeks new members because it's very tied to like an ethnic group specifically. And so they're yeah. not they're not like going out trying to like I mean you can convert to Judaism but you have to like want it. It's not something that they're actively going out and seeking new members whereas Christianity or you know the different branches of Christianity and Islam they are actively seeking to convert people. And so that I think is why Pratchett relies on these two religions, like because they are because Omniism is the like monotheistic religion of the disc world. I mean, we see that there are other places that have many gods that they worship and they coexist together. But Omnia like specifically is like, no, there's one God and we will kill people trying to convert them. What did you think about the way that Omnia was presented in this book? The church specifically at the Citadel is what it's called. At least at the beginning of this book, pre pre the tortoise, pre Bretha as the prophet. I mean, I, I kind of just was like, okay, yeah, it's an absolute, it's an absolute theocracy. Like that was my my take. I I have just like very instant kind of like flash takes where it's like, oh, this is what it is, and then I go into it. Like, there's very few things that I will like enjoy where I have to think about what my take is if that makes sense, where it's like, oh, this is what this is doing. And what this is doing, it's an absolute theocracy. And the whole point, like from the very beginning, the whole point, once I saw the setting of Omnia, I was like, okay, this is an absolute theocracy, which by the end of the book is going to have a religious upheaval where someone new is going to challenge the established order and the head of the church is going to be ousted. And that's exactly, like, this was even before I had met Brother. And I was like, yeah, this is what's going to happen. Uh, And so then when I met Brother and I met Vorbis, I was like, yep, okay. I've been watching a lot of Lost for Tessa Watches Lost, the miniseries that we're doing on Monkey Off My Backlog. And every time I read Brother, all I could hear was Desmond saying Brother in his like Scottish accent on that show. So that's that that was a lot. I mean, and Brother as a name, it's supposed to evoke brother, which is a very religious yeah. it has a lot of religious connotations to it. Yeah. And then also like Om, I think, is just kind of meant to be like a it's meant to sound like the the Om mm-hmm. Yeah, it's got kind of like a religious overtone to it. There are also some 
Christian references as well in terms of like the head of the novices, Brother Numrod, which is clearly like a pun, but it's also a reference to like the biblical Nimrod, who is like an actual biblical figure who is a mighty hunter before the Lord. You know, you have different things that come from Christianity in here as well, as well as well as other religions. Like they have like vestial virgins and I love the fact that like Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord and then created the helped create the Tower of Babel and was cursed for it. And then also we associate the word Nimrod because Bugs Bunny used it sarcastically talking about Elmer Fudd. You know, like, oh what a Nimrod. Today in the attic, um, my friend River was talking about potential titles for fanfic chapters that they have saved in a draft document somewhere, just titles, and one of them was um, two Elmer Fuds hunting each other. And I was like, that makes so much sense if Bugs Bunny is just a trickster deity uh, and opens up a portal to an alternate <laughs> reality where uh, there's another Elmer Fudd and they end yes. up just tracking one another, believing each other to be Bugs Bunny. I love it. But yeah, we get all of the different hallmarks, I guess, all the different hallmarks of like the Catholic Church, especially like they have the Quisition, which is clearly a, a take on the Inquisition. And because it's which like the still time, exists, by the way, which does still exist, they, they know that the eighth prophet is coming, like the time of the eighth prophet is nigh. And the book that the narrator emphasizes that when these types of things happen, that's when like churches tend to crack down on like becoming really spiritual and becoming really like back to the basics and we can't have anybody, any of these sinners around, you know? And so there are some really like really disturbing descriptions of like the acquisition of Vorbis and the way he sort of runs the church, even though he's not like the Cenobiarch. He's not yeah. the Cenobiarch, but he is the person who's clearly running it because he can. Although by the end of the book, he's going to become the Cenobiarch. Right. There's like a whole thing about the people who really run organizations, because like once you get too far up, you can't you you don't necessarily you don't necessarily have the attention to detail or the hands on the hands on nature of getting things done. Omnia is per perched on this like religious crusade against these other countries, right? They've already conquered other countries and like forcibly absorbed them. And they're they've got their sights set on a Phoebe, who which is a country we've we've seen before. What did you think about the ways in which he sees the church as this? I don't know if he wants power, if he really believes in his own power. What do you think? What are his motivations? Because he doesn't believe in Om. That that becomes very clear in the book. He believes in what he thinks Om is, and I think like that's really compounded by the fact then that. When he appears in the desert and like brother even says this to him beforehand that all he's hearing it, like it's not the voice of god it's the echo within his own head because nothing can actually escape which i thought was a really powerful line but like i guess he views the church of arm as the you know this hammer this mighty hammer which he's going to strike down all of the um heathen quote-unquote heathen states which is like a phoebe and you know their main like, oh, they choose their dictator. The tyrant. Yeah, they choose their dictator and, the, you know, like, oh, they even call him the tyrant. You know, it's like, oh, it's, it's very much like my way or the highway. You know, if you do something that we don't do, well, it's not a difference in culture. You're just like sinners. And they worship a lot of gods, right? They worship a lot of gods. Yeah. They have statues of gods. 
They, you know, they they have a much more relaxed attitude towards sex and sexuality, which is like a huge thing in Omnian. You know, like just being a woman in Omnia is like sinful in and of itself, right? So it's which is very very reminiscent of a lot of different religions. So yeah, there's it's kind of a Phoebe is kind of the antithesis of Omnia, right? And w- when Brutha actually goes to a Phoebe, he realizes that even the way they think is anti-religious because they're philosophers. They their whole job is to like question everything, which that in and of itself is a threat to Omnianism. The other more direct threat is that Vorbis knows that there are people in Omnia who are fans of the work of a certain philosopher, Didactylus, and his short scroll on the turtle moves. Because in Omnianism, the world is a sphere that rotates around the sun, much like the planet Earth does, but... Don't be ridiculous. No, it doesn't. Yeah, but the water would all fall off. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but but this text posits that the Discworld is a flat disc on four elephants on the Great Atuan, and Vorbis like cannot handle that as a concept because it goes er- against everything that it goes against a comp- it's a completely different paradigm, right? But it's be- the turtle moves becomes like this this symbol of the underground of the 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 people who don't want him in charge. It fucking boils his brain. Let's talk about Brutha. Brutha is probably the protagonist I felt most ambivalent or ambivalently towards, uh, like at the end of the book, because they kind like, I don't know, Mort was very, like, and I'm thinking specifically of like specific protagonists, because like the witches are very clear in their identity as witches. Mort is a very specific person doing a very specific thing, and that's clear and identifiable. Even Tepich in pyramids is kind of like the archetypical like prodigal son returning home you know he's the heir to uh he's the you know like sent away heir to a kingdom and has to come into his own right and then realize he doesn't want it but it's very clear what he is by the end of the book it's very unclear throughout what they want you to view brother as because by times they want you to believe that he's this you know well-meaning if naive kind of simple novice who cannot read or write um you know who can only like remember things very well and then also be this you know prophet and these things obviously aren't mutually exclusive but like it kind of vacillates wildly depending on the moment what you want them to be and it depends on whether the turtle is in the scene or not he definitely has a character arc in this and the question is is the character that's at the beginning of the novel the same character that's at the end of the novel and i would posit no i mean ideally it shouldn't right. be but like it feels like they're missing a couple of steps there and that's kind of what i mean with like pacing issues i feel like there definitely could be some scenes put in at different places i don't know what they would be but well um, like because he he starts off believing so completely in om his grandmother like religiously abused him like abused him in the name of religion he completely believes in it completely buys into it he's this novice right and then he meets om and om turns out to not be (laughs) perhaps as he imagined him to be but not only that but then he goes on this journey to a phoebe and he encounters philosophy and he also encounters vorbis's true evil nature right and 
he has this paradigm shift where it's like, okay, I'm still religious. I cannot think about religion in the same way anymore because that leads to people like Vorbis. And then he becomes the eighth prophet. And the eighth prophet part, I think, is what threw me because him becoming the eighth prophet seemed to have the most drastic impact on his personality. Like I, I understood like the growth all the way up to that point, but then it was like, now he's the eighth prophet and he speaks differently and thinks differently and everything is different. Although it ties back into a point I had about Reaper man that I really like some of the Mm. textual ways of showing how different entities talk, you know, like, um, when they're in, discourse at the end you know when he's in full eighth prophet mode all of um's words are put like bible chapter and verses or um commandments yeah like one two and then like i love how at the end of the bargaining he's like chapter two verse one (laughs) yeah yeah i loved all of that so brotha also like you said he has he can't read or write he can't connect like he can't connect words to to the letters right he has a really difficult time understanding how those two things are connected but he does have echoic memory and a photographic memory he can remember everything that he's ever heard and he can remember everything that he's ever seen i thought this was a really interesting way of talking about different kinds of literacies in this because there's so much importance placed on reading and writing in Western concepts of knowledge that a lot of times we forget the ways in which different people have other ways of just viewing the world and viewing knowledge or even different cultural backgrounds, right? There are some cultures that value oral recitation over reading and writing. So what did you think about that aspect of his character? I think it's good because it ties very well into Vorbis's belief that everyone in other countries are like kind of this heathen backwards people you know and they're not civilized despite the fact that you know like specifically a phoebe seems to be a very learned place with all of the philosophers who meet every day and discuss arguments and and reasons and philosophies and didactylus you know even has like a business where he just gives people wisdom you know he just comes up with like aphorisms and shit you know, so it's interesting that, like, in a culture, in a culture where reading and writing is kind of like the predominant methods of communication and presumed like intelligence, this form of literacy, as opposed to like a very culturally literate and competent culture being viewed negatively. It's really interesting that, you know, oral tradition, bardic tradition, is what's important because by the end of it like he doesn't learn how to read and write Mm, no he doesn't he's just like he learns off the entirety of the library in a phoebe and um then then goes like but you can't write no but i can draw you know and so he's just going to draw out the shapes of the words that he remembers and i i loved that scene too because even in a phoebe they don't completely understand him either because the, all those philosophers even though they meet and they talk they all still have to like write at least one scroll right to like almost like a dissertation right they have to write something in order to be considered a philosopher to get the official lufa oh don't fucking remind <laughs> me of <laughs> dissertations i literally have mine open on the screen right now 
Oh, hold on. Actually, there was a really funny... It, they didn't actually say the word dissertation, but that's all I could think about in this section. Everyone writes here. You just can't stop the buggers. And everyone can read them, said Bretha. Omnia was based on one book, and here there were hundreds. Well, they can if they want, said Ern, but no one comes in here much. These books aren't for reading. They're more for writing. Wisdom of the ages, this, said Didactylus. Gotta write a book, see, to prove you're a philosopher. Then you get your scroll and free official philosopher's loofah. And that's books that are meant for writing and not for reading is one of the most perfect definitions of most dissertations that I have ever seen. Like nobody's supposed to read someone's dissertation. Like three people are probably going to read it. It's more so you could prove that you could do what you say you're going to do. Yeah. So that, that really struck me as a grad student. I was like, Oh yeah, more for writing than for reading. I know what this is. This is grad school. <laughs> So they don't completely understand Bretha either, but they are very impressed with his ability to sit down and in 10 minutes memorize most of the scrolls in the library before they get burned, right, by by Vorbis's men. Although it's actually Didactylus who ends up setting fire to the library. Yeah, because if, I mean, if you've got a library, then you got to, it, and it's going to be set on fire, you got to do it yourself. What did you think about the burning of the library, uh, which is obviously supposed to be... It makes me very sad. It's supposed to be a parallel to the burning of the Library of Alexandria. I am very sad about the burning of the Library of Alexandria, but my brother likes to remind me of it occasionally. He'll just like, there'll be a pause and he'll be like, hey, and I'm like, what? And he's like, you remember how the Library of Alexandria burnt down? I'd be like, fuck, nearly in tears. Um, that in, that in Notre Dame. Oh yeah, he's a prick. Yes. He's a prick. I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, I know you have a lot of feelings about burning books, and we've talked about this before on this podcast, but yeah, that's supposed to be a very sad scene. And I think it's interesting that even though Bretha, even though he doesn't read or write, he still understands that these scrolls are important, right? That they shouldn't be burned, that the knowledge should be saved, even though like he, he doesn't understand any of this. And it's completely from a different culture than his as well, because he still believes in Om. So it, it's just it's fascinating to me that he understands that these are worth saving. He recognizes cultural value, which is very interesting because Ephibi is actively under enemy occupation or attempted occupation there, you know, because we see later on that the slaves have had enough and then they end up basically expelling the Omnian forces. But it's actively under, uh, like siege, basically because mm -hmm. uh because of the the army which has been set across the desert that Vorbus basically uh, lets in, and it goes back to that quote that I read about how one of the first things they do when you try to take over cultures to erase its identity and its stories. It's really interesting as well in Ireland. Eamon de Valera set fire to the National Archive, so we have very little records of births and censuses before a certain point because they were all in this building that he set fire to, um, or had set on fire, you know, but like it went on fire and all of these records were destroyed. So there's like a disenfranchisement from a cultural background and only in like the um in the Minker people and their oral traditions and stuff. And it's really funny as well, because Eamon de Valera invented racism towards travelers in Ireland. Like it wasn't a thing before he basically started this campaign of giving us someone to like hate. There wasn't any prejudice against travelers in Ireland before that, 
or you know very little it wasn't a common thing and so it's interesting that someone from outside from the occupying force recognizes the cultural significance of it and chooses to save it and it's really like this is a happy ending because brother remembers them all and will be able to transcribe them and also the librarian gets a cameo appearance where he uh rescues some of the scrolls and they end up well preserved in the library at the unseen university but now i'm also remembering the latest dlc update for assassin's creed odyssey which is a crossover with valhalla um you play as cassandra and one of the people you interact with in odyssey is the historian herodotus who's kind of credited as the father of history and so the whole like dlc part that takes that's on odyssey's side is to set up cassandra being a, an immortal who goes after all these relics and so she's going to travel the world but she leaves them behind because they'll age and die but she's like oh yeah i'll spread your word i'll spread your work herodotus and it's, and it's this really like touching moment that he won't be forgotten and then there's like some credits go and then there's a post-credit scene where she like puts a scroll of his into a collection and then it like zooms out and it's the library at alexandria and then i'm like oh no that's all gonna burn down it's all gonna burn yeah so it's interesting that bretha recognizes that the library shouldn't burn but also it's the first thing that vorbis attacks like he takes over the city or takes over the palace i should say and then immediately sends a group of people to burn the library headed by bretha yeah right and so it's it's interesting that that is the real threat to Vorbis. Well, especially because, like, the Chelonian Mobile, um, you know, things like that. And I guess if he perceives one work as like that, well, then all the rest of them must be like that also. Or, you know, but it's also interesting that he wants Brutha to do it because he perceives Brutha as simple-minded and he won't understand. I think Vorbis is shrewdly aware of what the books and scrolls are inside the library, but he thinks Brother is too stupid to know. So yeah, this is another instance of underestimating someone's intelligence based on their the type of literacy that they prefer, right? We assume that people who can't read or write are not smart, but that is actually rarely the case. So yeah, it's it's very, very interesting to me. But you also need to be careful what you read, right? Like if you're if you are trying to suppress any information except for the kind you want people to have, you can't let them read other things. Yeah. Because that's gonna cause them to question you. Let's since we're in a Phoebe, we're talking about a Phoebe, let's talk about a Phoebe and the philosophers. What did you think about we we've encountered some of these characters before, specifically Zeno and Ibid in Pyramids. Pyramids. What did what did you think about seeing these characters again? meeting Dilacticos and earn all of these other philosophers. I love Didactylos. Uh He's so fun, but it's also like one of my favorite philosophers is Diogenes of Sinope, who's quite clearly the inspiration for, you know, philosopher whose name begins with D is kind of like, does not give a fuck and lives in a barrel. Mm-hmm. Is quite clearly Diogenes of Sinope. Uh, and the way he stands up to Vorbis is very much... Diogenes of Sinop saying to Alexander uh, the Great to move out of the way because he's standing in his sunshine. But, or, well, I, I don't know whether it's the same Alexander, but someone called Alexander. And also, like, it's such a striking image the image of a blind man going around with a lantern. I thought it was very funny when he goes, when, like, Vorbis has him brought 
to the throne room and he's like oh you carry a lantern despite the fact that you're blind probably for some catchword reason uh is the direct quote and Detectalus is just like no <laughs> he just goes no like it's just the the wacky thing like Didactylus would most definitely like it's such a Discworld moment despite the fact that it purportedly happened the um behold a man you know where he refutes Aristotle's belief that a man is a featherless biped and brings in a chicken that like that could have happened in Discworld oh yeah 100% but it happened in real life yeah I feel like sometimes there are situations in which real life you almost can't satirize it because it's too absurd to satirize. And I feel like Pratchett is brushing right up against that with the philosophers because a lot of these philosophers were just ridiculous bananas people. Like they, they did things in pursuit of their philosophy that are, it's almost impossible to satirize it because it's just kind of its own thing. And you, you, you just have to kind of say, yep, that that's something that happened. Yep. They actually did that. I think Didactylus has a really astute, some very astute observations about religion and philosophy and how those are two different paradigms to view the world through, because one is yeah. more questioning than the other one. There's this really great scene where Brutha and he, like, he's telling Brutha about the turtle, about the Great Atuan. And Bretha says, how could this be a world on the back of a tortoise? Why does everyone tell me this? This can't be true. Tell that to the mariners, said Didactylus. Everyone who's ever sailed the rim ocean knows it. Why deny the obvious? But surely the world is a perfect sphere spinning about the sphere of the sun, just as Septectuic tells us, said Bretha. That's just so logical. That's how things ought to be. Ought, said Didactylus. Well, I don't know about ought. That's not a philosophical word. I loved that quote because that is the perfect distillation of why religion and philosophy are different from each other. Ought is a religious mm. word. Ought is not a philosophical word. Yeah, you ought to do this. You ought to do that. Ought not. Yeah. I like that. But it's also like, it's weird because it thought, I thought this was common knowledge. Because like, yeah, sure. Let's say that Omnia is so... Because they like close the borders and everything. They, that's what they say. So it's so completely isolated from the world and practices such a strict religious dogma that they don't or willingly choose to ignore the fact that the disc world is a flat disc which resides on the back of elephants, which reside on the back of the Great Atuan. But I thought this was a commonly held belief. And because like Didactylos's Decelonian Mobile um, is not exclusively written for people in Omnia. It's meant to be this kind of like, it's framed nearly as this fringe theory. And it's like, obviously it's kind of paralleling Galileo and Copernicus who said that the sun, like that the universe or our galaxy is um, heliocentric and not geocentric. Um, you know, and the way he go, like the way he's called to Vorbis is very much that Galileo in front of the Catholic church being like, you know, Give me a reason if you can find just reason. Martin Luther even saying, like, if you can find reason in the Bible, I'll recant, but you won't because I, you know, I know I'm right. And, but Didactylus is very shrewd and goes like, yeah, no, I'll change it. And so I was trying to put it in a timeline, but it's very weird because this is meant to be ancient civilizations, but it seems to at least take place post Reaper Man because there's a comment about how there's a separate death of rats. 
The death of rats only happens once death is relieved of his duty by the auditors of reality. But that seems to be taking place in kind of the main timeline. I don't want to use the word main timeline because maybe there is an explanation. But he only exists post-Reaperman, Death of Rats. Yes. So I actually think I have an explanation for this because I've been also racking my brain as to when this book occurs because... Is it time travel? I think so. And here's oh, why. For fuck's sake, I hate that. I hate that, I hate that, I hate that. I want to know what you think after we read a few more books. Because it's not specific. It's not clear. But I think that the reason that this book happens the way it happens is because of the history monks. Because of Lutzi. Because... The history monks are introduced in this book. This is the first time that we've seen them. And Lutzi is obviously sort of the person behind the scenes in a lot of these scenes. He's the smiling, very Zen Buddhist monk who is just sort of taking care of his his mountains and secretly making sure that things happen the way that they're supposed to happen or the way he thinks that they should happen. I mean, he's also just a very, very, like, clear uh allegory to the uh philo- the, the chinese philosopher Lao Tse. yes uh Lao Tse, also known as uh yeah he for- he found it he founded taoism the tao tao te ching this is this is what i think so there is this is called ancient civilizations there are references to this book having happened many years before in other books like you get people talking about bretha as someone who existed a long time ago However, this is not the last time we're going to see the history monks. The history monks are going to play more of a role in another book called Thief of Time, which is all about time and timelines. They also show up in another book, which I'm not going to tell you because I think it's kind of a cool twist that they show up. They basically, they try to keep the timeline together. They try to make sure that things happen when they're supposed to happen, that causes come before effects, you know, like those types of things. So even though we're not directly told that perhaps this is like a time bubble, like a like a jelly baby situation where they they've sort of hit like a time polder, I think that this is perhaps an explanation for why this book happens when it happens but then also seems like it happens a long time ago does that make any sense as an explanation no but not because no but not because it doesn't make sense but because i'm viewing it without the context of these other books that you mentioned and maybe it will make yes. sense afterwards yes but as is i'm like hmm i'll allow it keep that keep that in the back of your mind just just kind of put it back there. And as we read these other books, see, I, I'm curious to see what you think, because I didn't come to that conclusion until I read it this time, this read through. Uh, let's see. Oh, Didactylus also has a really great critique of Omnia. I got to find this one, too. But it goes back to what we were talking about with the color of magic and the death of the mind. So we've talked about the death of the mind a few times in Terry Pratchett. It's something that he's very interested in. The idea of, like, what does a mob mentality look like? What does death of the mind look like? And Didactylus talks about having gone to Omnia before. And he says, I know about sureness. Now the light, irascible tone had drained out of his face. I remember before I was blind, I went to Omnia once. This was before the borders were closed, when you still let people travel. 
and in your citadel, I saw a crowd stoning a man to death in a pit. Ever seen that? It has to be done, Bretha mumbled, so the soul can be shriven and... Don't know about the soul. Never been that kind of a philosopher, said Didactylus. All I know is that it was a horrible sight. The state of the body is not... Oh, I'm not talking about the poor bugger in the pit, said the philosopher. I'm talking about the people throwing the stones. They were sure, all right. They were sure it wasn't them in the pit. You could see it in their faces. So glad it wasn't them that they were throwing just as hard as they could. Mm. And that that definitely gave me that death of the mind, like being so sure that you're not the one that's being trampled on by your religious institution that you're willing to trample on somebody else because you don't want that institution to turn its gaze on you. Yeah. A rising tide raises all ships, but a sinking ship raises all rats. That's a fun little saying I've just come up with. TM. Nigel TM. Nigel TM. Yeah, I'm basically like the Dactylos. Um, It also (laughs) reminds me, I think I've quoted this in the podcast before, but maybe I might have just said it before the actual recording to piss off Sam. Because she was like, (laughs) she was like, please don't quote the mountain goods. And I'm like, I'm going to. But there's a a lyric from, oh, I want to say Last Gasp at Kalama. I don't remember off the top of my head because I wasn't going to quote this one for this episode. Um, it is one of the songs for Pierre Chauvin, and it's very Prachetian in how it's constructed, which is, um, yeah, let he who's at that sin throw the first one, like you said, let anyone else throw the second as long as it connects with your head. Yep, it's La Last Gasp of Kalama. Interestingly, one of the ones I was going to quote was from the same cassette, Songs for Pierre Chauvin, from the song Exegetic Chains, which is, say your prayers to whomever you call out to in the night, keep the chains tight make it through this year if it kills you outright which is an interesting take on belief would just you know say say your person to whoever it is like there's no discrimination of faith which is kind of the opposite of omnia it's it's like how didactylus views religion where it's like you know whoever you pray to you know as long as it's not stoning someone to death this is the same way i view, view religion i think it's the way everyone should view religion even religious people but it's also parallels another mountain goat song uh younger which is the lead single off of their um album in league with dragons which it uh the lyrics are like it always it's always good to give thanks to the local gods you never know who might be hungry Mm, yeah that that very much fits in with the themes of this episode yeah and that's right after a very very vorbous quote which i'm trying to just get the actual yeah, uh, at the end of verse two, it never hurts to give thanks to the broken bones you had to use to build your ladder. The like, just the use of you had to use to build your ladder after basically just decimating someone and using them as a um, like, like like it was so chilling the moment where it's revealed that the uh, emissary to a Phoebe wasn't stoned to death that they just made that up. Yeah, that they lightly gave him a talking to, and then. Vorbis talks about the fundamental truth. The fundamental truth. And it's very heavily implied that they killed him. Yeah. When they came when they when he came back to Omnia. Exactly. Yeah. They need to produce a body. Um uh, right. they need to produce a body. One that's and been so, horrifically tortured, right? Yeah, exactly. So that and who is it that they that was going to go on the mission to a Phoebe with them and the Quisition shows up at his door and kill him? Uh, the general. Yeah, the general. I'm trying to remember uh, his name. It's, bas- it's like Ifrit or something like that. 
And he, the, yeah, the general is very haunted by his role in these religious wars. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, it's uh, fr- Frit, Frit. Yeah, Frit. F R I apostrophe I T. Which seems to be, I don't know, what I got was um, uh, an Ifrit, which is a powerful type of demon in Islamic mythology. It's just kind of like mm. a spooner, spoonerized version of that. But like, definitely the prophet. That or like the messenger that they send to a Phoebe first is used as a catalyst or like a pretext for war, uh, kind of like you know, the Germans saying that the Polish invaded by dressing up people as Polish soldiers um, as a pretext for invading Poland. Or there's another example in the Korean War that it, it slipped my head, but yeah, like Vorbis is grateful to this person he's killed, so he's grateful to the broken bones that he had to use to build his ladder absolutely fits together with Vorpus. And yeah, he says it's the fundamental truth, which I actually think he believes. Like he does believe that there is a truth that you have to protect. It's just you have to break all of the pieces to fit into the truth. Like it's like trying to put a square peg into a round hole so you have to shave off the corners to make it fit. But that's like nearly what's most terrifying is that someone who's so... who 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 believes so unshakably in his beliefs. And I, I was kind of thinking at the start that he was nearly a parallel to Vetinari because they seem to occupy similar roles and their names both begin with V. But the patrician is like... The patrician is someone who's unshakable in his beliefs, but he's not tyrannical. You know, like, he knows exactly what's good for a country. And he, he's put the country first, whereas Vorbis has put faith first, and the country must follow that. I also don't think Vetinari is in any way He's not evil aligned, and he's not deluded. About, yeah, I don't think he's deluded about people and how people work. I think he knows how people work. And so he... Yeah, that's where we get the... the you know, the conversation with him and Vimes at the end of... Yeah, he's not fundamentally trying to shape or change people, right? He's trying to get them to work in their best interests. Yeah. He's not... Yeah, he he is... If if presented with a round hole and a square peg, Vetinari is going to try to find a square peg, like a square hole, right? To put that peg into. He's not going to... He's going to have a square hole made. Right. He's not going to try to change the pe- you know the people that are in Ankh-Morpork to fit into his idea of the truth. He's going to try to get them to work together towards a better future. I think that is yeah, you're right. There are some parallels. The Venonari's philosophy seems to be the fall of Boyleric. Uh baby seasons change but people don't, you know. Yes. Absolutely. They have these predetermined roles whereas and this is this is I'm going to say it now. It's the thing that made me think a lot, which is what's what they say is what's wrong with Vorbis is not that he's evil, is that he makes other people like him. And I suppose you can view that as like in the you know, like the affable sense. Like, you know, like they make him like him, that he's so repugnant and yet he comes off as a charismatic figure like Judge Claude Frollo in Hunchback of Notre Dame. Or he makes people similar to him, you know, that he brings them down to his level and twists and breaks them. So you have a gra- a group of people who would stone another person, you know, without question. Obviously, there are people in this world who deserve to be punished, um, but only if they do, like, really, really abhorrent crimes. 
I don't think you should punish someone for like stealing food if they um you know if they need it to feel their family. I don't know why I fell back on um the Jean Valjean example, but it's a good example of like <laughs> it's a great example. It's a good example of like moralizing in um in like you know in lawmaking you know because the society which has like society has led him to that point where that's his only recourse but that wouldn't that would never happen under veterinary because of the guilds and the stuff that veterinary has helped create and run Mm -hmm. so crime has gone down because there is a quota of crime that the thieves guild that the assassins guild have to meet every year crime has on the whole gone down whereas when there's not these syndicates in places like omnia yeah, sure, there's not, like, as explicit, you know, assassinations and shit, but, like, the country is far, far worse than Ankh Morpork is. Yeah, and I, I, I love that you you brought up that idea of him turning people into copies of himself or inspiring that kind of evil in other people. We see that in the Quisition, right? Because there's this whole thing at the beginning where they say, like, yeah, there are some sadists in the Quisition, but mostly it's just normal people. You can get normal people to do terrible things. Yeah, exactly. And it's like the quote from Guards Guards where it's like there'd be you know any person who'd follow any dragon, you know, just cuz no one is willing to say no. Yeah. What's the name of the the soldier guy who keeps like you know who wants to go in guns blazing uh you know when they put Omnia to siege where they're like, "Well, you know, you need to ex- Simony Sergeant Simony, where they, uh, you know, they have to stop and ask, what's the fundamental difference between you and Vorbis? And really, there's nothing if he continues down this this path. And it's in like it's good then that that's what Brother chooses to base the tenets of his religion on. You know, where they say we're going to have to stop the Quisition. Uh, you know, the e- you know the hard way, and they go what killing everyone. He goes, no, that's the easy way. But some of them probably will have to be killed. The people who enjoyed it. There's this great scene where Ern is talking to Simony and he says, like, he compares Simony to Vorbis and Simony's grip was like a vice. You're saying I'm like him? Once you said you'd cut him down, said Ern. Now you're thinking like him. So we rushed them then, said Simony. I'm sure of maybe 400 on our side. So I give the signal and a few hundred of us attack thousands of them and he dies anyway and we die too. What difference does that make? Ern's face was gray with horror now. You mean you don't know, he said. Some of the crowd looked around curiously at him. You don't know? And I I love that. Like this idea of like, how can you not know the difference between letting someone die and doing nothing to save them because there's no chance of saving them or like trying to save them and failing because it's the right thing to do. Like that, that to me was a really powerful moment where he's just like, how can you not know the difference? Like that's the real evil of Vorbis is convincing someone that it's hopeless. Right. And for them to not know the difference between trying to save one, someone and not trying to save someone, even though they're the person's going to die anyway. Yeah. What did you think of the other philosophers besides Didactylus? We have a lot of different philosophers being referenced here. We have uh, Archimedes, especially because we have all the the philosophical discoveries in bathtubs, which is apparently such a commonplace occurrence in a Phoebe that they they all have a loofah right with them. 
But there's also the Archimedes reference when Om tells Bretha, like, yeah, most of the stuff that the philosophers come up with are silly, but every once in a while they come up with something like really deadly. And he points at the the lens on top of the Epheban tower, which is a real technology that that Archimedes invented to burn enemy ships. There's another Archimedes reference. I wonder, did you get it? I, I'm not sure. I think those are the only two that I got. When um, the guards come into, I think it's the library where Didactylus is there. He says, careful, gentlemen, don't disturb my circles, which is a famous Archimedes quote when so- soldiers boarded his ship. Although it's very funny in this one, they go, what circles? He goes, oh, come back in an hour and I'll have some circles for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that Zeno, of course, we've seen him before. He's like an actual reference to Zeno, spelled with a Z, and we get his liars paradox here. The all Ephebans are liars. You know, that that's an actual paradox. Oh, it's also interesting, sorry, that the um, Noli Turbari Circulos Meos, which is attributed to Archimedes, took place uh, when he was confronted by a Roman soldier during the siege of Syracuse. So it seems to be that Ephebe is standing in for Syracuse when the Omnians invade, or at least in part. Oh, they're his last words. They're his last words. Ah. Oh, I love that. Um, Yeah. I- Ibid at one point says thesis plus ant- antithesis equals hy- hysteresis, which is a play on dialectical materialism. That's exactly how I feel about Hegel. I fucking hate Hegel. Yeah, from Hegel and Marx. Yeah, usually it's thesis plus antithesis yields synthesis, but oh, there's we a get very hysteresis. yeah, there's a very good no context attic tweet, um, which is just things which are said out of context in the society room for Litzok, which is uh, the attic, and I'm just trying to find it now, which is a um, an example of Hegelian um, dialectics. Yes, when you consider it, it's like Hegel. Gender equality is the thesis, beat poetry is the antithesis, and Greta Gerwig films are the synthesis. <laughs> it's a remarkably cogent example. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, and there's there's other there's tons of religious philosophy, scientific philosophy. I mean, there's a there's a point where they say, to put it another way, the existence of a badly put together watch proves the existence of a blind watchmaker. Oh yeah, the watchmaker paradox, yeah. Yeah, the idea that the universe clearly was created but not by someone competent, which actually sounds a lot like Douglas Adams again. That goes back to uh, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish and the last message from the creator to the universe, sorry for the inconvenience. Well, I mean, the watchmaker analogy is uh, an example of deism, which I think is an interesting one, but like, I had to write about it for my... um, I did a module last year, which is basically like quantum physics, but make it literature. I saw like I think the watchmaker analogy and loads of people have um discussed it even like Charles Darwin and stuff. I think it's an interesting approach. Uh, yeah, the the watchmaker thing is an old concept. I I meant like the humor of saying like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the universe was created but not by someone who was very good at it. That's very Douglas Adams. Oh yeah, no, my point was just I like the watchmaker analogy. There's also I feel like I'm like quoting Didactylus all from the same page. Today. Yeah, there was a lot of like a lot of things all in one one go. Yeah, I really liked his three basic philosophies. You've got to remember there's three basic approaches to philosophy in these parts, said Didactylus. Tell him, Ern. There's the Xenoists, said Ern promptly. They say the world is basically complex and random. 
And then there's the Ibidians. They say the world is basically simple and follows certain fundamental rules. And there's me, said Didactylus, pulling a scroll out of its rack. Master says basically it's a funny old world, said Urn, and doesn't contain enough to drink, said Didactylus, and doesn't contain enough to drink. There's also a section where they say that he's like a a combination of the the Cynics, the Epicureans, and the Stoics all wrapped into one. (laughs) Hmm. Which those are real, those are real philosophical strains of thought. So I just thought that was really funny. Okay, we have talked and talked and talked around this topic. So it's finally time to like talk about like the actual central person in this book besides Bretha. What did you think about the actual great god Om? (laughs) Not the Omnian religion, the actual deity who spends most of the book as a tortoise with one believer. I thought it was a bit pathetic, but I think that's kind of the point. And that, what I thought was more interesting was the, the concept of the small gods that kind of like circle around like vultures, because it's very... So you have that on one hand, we have this like metaphorical thing going on where he's being hunted by these small gods. And that's a thing we've talked about before, what happens to gods when people stop believing in them. And it's a thing in Neil Gaiman as well in American Gods with the place under the bone orchard where all the dead and forgotten gods like the bison go. But I thought that, so you have that and then you have like a physical version of this metaphor where, you know, he's a turtle and he is quite literally being preyed upon by an eagle. That was a more interesting thing. I was like, oh, he's a turtle. Oh, okay, fine. The beginning of this book re- very much reads like an Aesop's fable, like the like a fable of the eagle and the tortoise, you know, or something like that. Yeah. And then that's repeated throughout the book, like this idea that the e- eagles are one of the main predators of turtles or tortoises because they can like smash their shells by flying them up really high and then smashing them. And then, you know, they eat them, which that's repeated throughout the book, right? There's good eating on a tortoise. Yeah, constantly. I love that. Just the fact that it was constantly. Like, oh, have you seen my Taurus? No. There's good eating on one of those. There's good eating on one of those. Yeah, and I, I had to think about it for a bit because I was like, why do they keep repeating this? And I think I think that the eagle and the tortoise serves as sort of a metaphor for the relationship between gods and people and their believers specifically. Like, usually the gods are like the eagles, right, that are able to smash up a tortoise who is slow and not as majestic as an eagle, but they can smash them because they have the power and then there's good eating on them, right? There's good eating on a believer. So Om is forced to be in the position of the tortoise instead of in the position of the eagle. While perhaps he doesn't have quite the same character arc as Bretha, he does learn throughout the book what it's like to be a person, what it's like to be a tortoise, what it's like to not have this kind of power. And it makes him really not only empathize with his believers, right? At the end where he goes to the mountain of the gods to like basically get into a a, uh, a fight with the other gods to prevent the war from happening. Yeah, that was a good moment. Instead of him telling Bratha what to say, Bratha really tells him what to be for the people which is like a really fun reversal, I think, of the tortoise and eagle metaphor. Yeah, I like that, that it's inverted, because like, it's what was really interesting was what they've basically done is they set out a predicate, which like, um, tells Bertha at one stage where he's like, oh, 
if you, uh, you know, like belief in other things has superseded a belief in God when he tells him, oh, just go and strike down Vorbis. So like they started a predicate and I was learning about predicates recently. Um, by recently, I mean yesterday because I was looking at the Sorites paradox or the paradox of the heap because we were trying to remember what the actual name for that paradox was because it's not the ship of Theseus. But it's really interesting that they have that. And then at the end of the novel, Brutha's belief in what is right supersedes a belief in God. God has to like bend to that belief because striking down Vorbis is probably objectively correct, but not morally. Whereas like no killing for at least a hundred years and then we'll, you know, renegotiate like that's, that's a, uh, a good, that's a good thing to do. That's like morally correct. The will of God has to bend to the will of man. I think at one point, Bretha even says God should believe in people. Like people need to believe in gods, but gods need to believe in people too. Like they need to invest in people in a way that they had not previously. They hadn't. And it's like, it reminds me of the Bo Burnham song from God's Perspective, which I think like, oh, you know, I'm not going to be oh, it's a white guy, it's, um, you know, it's Bo Burnham, oh, he's so deep. But I think it, like, plainly lays out a lot of things that, like, people with fundamental religious beliefs don't stop and consider. You know, like, things like, I don't watch you when you sleep. Surprisingly, I don't use my omnipotence to be a fucking creep. But then at the end, you know, it's things like, you shouldn't abstain from pork just because you think that I want you to. You can eat pork because why the fuck would I give a shit? Uh, you argue and you bicker and you fight. Atheists and Catholics, Jews and Hindus argue day and night over what they think is true, but no one entertains the thought that maybe God does not believe in you. And then, you know, like early Bo Burnham songs are really good at this, where they'd, you know, you kind of have this satirical nonsense for most of the song, and you get like the kicker in the tail. And I'm not likening these two things, but oh, Henry also did this, you know, he had the twist in the tail with his short stories. My love's the type of thing that you have to earn, and when you and when you earn it, you won't need it. Very much like Nanny McPhee. Um, my love's the type of thing that you have to earn, and when you earn, you won't. You when you earn it, you won't need it. I'm not going to give you love just because I know that you want me to. If you want love, then the love's got to come from you. Like you need to have a fundamental empathy and display caring for human beings before you should attempt having a religion. That's very, very rarely how it happens. <laughs> well and i love that you brought up the whole like why would i care about you eating pork because i feel like that's very om throughout this whole book like every time bretha quotes a religious text to om he's like did i say that i don't remember saying that maybe i was like having a bad day like he like and he barely remembers his other prophets right which underscores this idea in the book that the gods are much they're not very smart. Like it actually does not take a lot of intelligence to be a God, right? They're the average believer is much smarter than the God that they claim to believe in most situations. So I, I thought that that was a really interesting way of talking about how like these, these gods, like if there was a God like this, why would they actually care about all of these things? And if you were to create a religion based on the kind of God worth believing in, what would that God actually look like? You know, like it, it's kind of like a two, two way street in this case. Hmm. We do get to see the gods playing 
a game playing a board game with the affairs of men, right? Which yeah, um, interrupts to 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 prevent the war from happening. And we've said it before in yeah, in Color of Magic and the Light, Fantastic. It seems to be very D and D, but it's also really funny because you have the Einstein quote: "God does not play dice with the universe," but they very much do. They can't. They can't play a game more complicated. Right. That's the Terry Pratchett joke. Right. Like they can't they don't play chess like that's that's too complicated of a game for for gods to play. Yeah, he was referencing a phrase or, you know, when he already had gods not play dice at the universe. But then he clarified in a letter, apparently, God tirelessly plays dice under laws, which he has himself prescribed, which brings to mind the um, the greased up ladder image from like, I think it's in the light fantastic where they talk about the greased up ladder that's very hard to get up. Um in terms of godhood it, what really emphasizes it right is that um surprise attacks these gods he's he's riding high on all this belief right that that has suddenly surged into him so he's able to defeat them and to make them appear to the combatants and tell them to stop and i love what they said was basically one this is not a game two here and now you are alive and to me like those that's the distillation of a god believing in their people right like this is actually not a game like we play games with this but we shouldn't play games with it word for word what brother said to him right right exactly so yeah again like we see brother actually defining as a believer using his belief to define the parameters of his god to change who his god is in order to make him a better god for people yeah. instead of the other way around. But it's also interesting because he's a prophet and a prophet is meant to dictate the will of God. Like this prophet is the medium by which the incomprehensible, ineffable will of God is made palatable and understandable to mortal minds. But it's really interesting because this is something that the prophet has pronounced outside of the context of being a mouthpiece for God. And he's pronounced this, and then God echoes it. You know, like, God has come down from the mountain, but he sat down at the campfire, and he's just listening to a story. Uh, I'm thinking of, just recently we, we released the Hyperfixations episode where we got to interview Will Wood, and one of the things he said, re, you know, has really stuck with me. Uh, all we do all of the time is just tell each other stories. And that's all it is. Mm-hmm. Like, God is yeah. a story or a cultural concept held up by enough people. It's how we define the chaos of the universe into understandable bits of information. Yeah. Like, we can't comprehend how random the universe actually is. We have to make patterns out of it, which is another thing that Terry Pratchett talks about a lot. Yeah, and because, like, it's in very few things. Like, people talk about, oh, forgotten religions and stuff all the time, especially in fantasy. You know, like, oh, this this um old church, which is to some old god or whatever. But very few ones... and. Pratchett and Gaiman have been the ones who consistently do it well. Like, it's in American Gods, it's in Sandman, it's in uh, Small Gods, it's in Pyramids. The concept of where gods go to die, you know? Reinforcing this notion that once the people stop believing that God doesn't have anything, it's the reason that the war is started in American Gods, this plan between Loki and Odin to drum up a war which will make people believe in them so they stay strong. It's the reason that, oh, what's his fucking name? In the, you know, the the small town that he goes to in the, the part My Ainsel, uh Shadow goes there. His name begins with a H. I don't remember what it is. And then he returns at the end to realize that he's actually, he's actually been the one who's been killing people all over town. The guy in the truck. Fucking what's his name? 
he's like some local legend that got ported over when settlers came to America and had to live with like a drought of belief and so ended up just killing people. You know, like that's how he's coping. Hinselman. Hinselman, yes, Hinselman. Where he's taking a child every year. Yeah, exactly. He's taking a child because like people end up basically creating this like straw man figure or like the boogeyman they believe in and that is indirectly feeding him you know so very few people do that like what do gods do when the people who believe in them stop and you have this with om as well where he's like do i remember that do i not and the further he gets away from brother the less he remembers the more like a turtle he becomes which is also reminiscent of esk in equal rights with the eagle where she starts to think that it, where it becomes more like an eagle that sort of remembers how to walk around right like the tortoise is a a tortoise who dreams that maybe he was a god at one point yeah but all the yeah all the small gods in the desert and the ways in which they have been pushed right towards the desert pushed towards the center yeah the echoes of like civilizations that used to believe in them that's all just so fascinating to me. And like Om um, being like, no, he's mine. He's mine. He's mine. He's mine. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed that really reminded me of the witches, especially because this is this is actually more of a Tiffany aching thing, which we haven't gotten to yet. But it's it's an interesting thing is that he talks about having Brutha talks about having like an internal monologue. So like part of his brain expanding, right? And becoming more flexible and more adaptable, going through this paradigm shift um, that we generally we generally associate this with like the enlightenment or like realizing that you can be self-critical and self-conscious. He calls it the Brutha that watched the Brutha. So like the Brutha that watches. Oh, like that Beyonce meme. Yeah, so like the brotha that watches the brotha, right? The the thing inside of him that the... I'm gonna I'm gonna get the image and I'm just gonna put it in the chat and then you will laugh and people won't be able to see it. Uh, yeah, continue. But yeah, that that is a reference to something. I mean, that's the first time that I saw this, but I wanted to highlight it because it's something that will come up again in in Terry Pratchett, like the idea of having like a point of view inside a voice or a point of view inside your head that watches what you're doing and comments on it. He was feeling that strange double feeling again. On the surface, there were the thoughts of Brutha, who were exactly the thoughts that the Citadel would have approved of. This was a nest of infidels and unbelievers. It's very mundanity, a subtle cloak for the traps of wrong thinking and heresy. It might be bright with sunlight, but reality, it was a place of shadows. But down below were the thoughts of the Brutha that watched the Brutha from the inside. Vorbis looked wrong here. Sharp and unpleasant, and any city where potters didn't worry at all when naked, dripping wet old men came in and drew triangles on their walls was a place Bretha wanted to find out more about. He felt like a big, empty jug. The thing to do with empty was to fill it up. But yeah, like the idea that you can have somebody who's like, yeah, this is the way that I've always thought about things. This is how this place fits perfectly into the way the world has been described to me in this religious context. I understand everything that's going on. But then there's a part of him that's able to look at what he's thinking and go, mm, that doesn't make sense. Right. That doesn't that doesn't work exactly with what you're feeling and what you've observed so far. Well, it was kind of like. Uh, I was going to use the word double think, but that's a very specific way that 
marginalized people like people of color in America were viewed. It's an idea that W.E.B. Dubois brings up in the souls of black people, and that's not the word I should use. So, but like, I think I think I'm conflating it with just like doing a double take. But yeah, like you have to do this double take, and it's like you've got these two worlds where it's like this book is not a book about the dichotomy between the religious and the secular. That's not what it's about. It's a diatribe on intersectionality. And so like, because there's different types of monotheism, because there's like, what is it like a functional monotheism? I don't know, but there's like what, there's a specific form of monotheism. There's a name for it. I think it begins with H, Hinotheism, whatever it is, where it's like, you're monotheistic, but you recognize that there are other gods in the world that people believe in and you respect that but that's not what you believe in yourself and that's very much not what omnia is but it's what a phoebe is like even the philosophers even the philosophers who don't believe in gods they know the gods exist right and they only will say that they don't believe in gods when they're in the library and can't get struck by lightning <laughs> like that was uh you know like it's kind of the middle ground between functional monotheism and polytheism. Because, like, although the fact that, like, Ephebe is kind of the ancient Greece stand-in, like, it's not explicitly a polytheistic country. There are lots of gods, they recognize that, but then they also do, like, the philosophers, when they're in their buildings, they say, oh, there, you know, there's no god, there's no such thing as gods in the Discworld, except Blind Io and, uh, you know, like the actual gods of the Discworld, um, the ones who live on Cori Celeste. Yeah, that fits in with like an ancient Greek mindset, though, because most of them believed in all the gods, but you had certain sects that worshipped that preferred like a god over another god, or you know, and it wasn't. And the idea was is that you if you believed in all these gods or even like thinking about like the Roman empire where there was a lot of different religions that coexisted at the same time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like a, like the Mithra, the cult of Mithras. Yeah. You had like the, the Roman gods, but they were such, they had a lot of different cultures that they had absorbed and it was like, Oh yeah, you can believe in your God. That's fine. Like, you know, you just, it was a very functional, you don't have to believe in all the gods, but we know that you believe in like, this particular religion and you celebrate it this way. So yeah, I, I, that's what it, that's what a Phoebe seems like to me is that it's like, nobody like is right. It's a religious place, but nobody is regulating the religion. Yeah. Religion should never be a state should not be created in concert with a religion. Um, and it's kind of like, like America, I know was meant to be, you know, it's famous church and state are separate. <laughs> sure. But also we were doing the satanic panic in a module I'm doing today. It's really interesting. It's called American Horror Stories. But there's like a load of theorists basically who think that satanic belief, or at least like in the popular eye, the satanic belief, like came to prominence so starkly because of the void left by the move from Christian belief to secularism. And the void that that left there made this all the more prominent. And also, at the time, there was a, the rise of a lot of fundamentalist, like, Protestant beliefs. So it's really interesting that you have that. And also, you know, things like P. 
people finally beginning to speak frankly about abuse of all forms you know like the fact that child abuse happens within the child's own home that kind of thing but like on the strictly religious sense this idea of satanic ritual abuse and the popular conception of satanic ritual satanism coming from a void where society is moving away from religion whereas in a phoebe it's like there is a lot of religion but it's not a specific national focus yeah exactly although i mean as an american i would definitely say there's a lot of fundamentalist christian stuff written into our legal system that shouldn't be there oh yeah it's back again it's back again well, yeah, it's just it. It's always kind of been there. Is the problem? It just kind yeah. of separation of church and state and uh, nation and nation on the hill are such bullshit. That's a myth in the U.S. Yeah, it's so funny because that's what everyone like touts America yeah. to be, and it's like mm. it is a myth. Yeah, there's a lot of we're doing a lot of like critical reading and stuff, and it's like you have the like to do with the satanic panic and its books by like um a guy called jenkins wrote um a decade of nightmares uh w scott Poole did a woman called uh lucifer rising and a lot of it was like a lot of it comes down to they believe things like the watergate scandal things like that that showed that there was this deep that kind of exposed the deep corruption that was at the head of american politics that was really embedded in the national ideal you know, and it kind of like, you know, kind of throws into stark focus how bullshit the nation on the hill idea really is. Again, leading to Satanism, which I suppose, like, popular Christian society's view of Satanism is kind of how Omnia views the, you know, I'm going to just use the term laissez-faire polytheism in a Phoebe, you know, where they're, because it's interesting as well, the use of the word unbeliever, because it's not, it's not disbelief. They don't not believe in your thing. They believe in something else. Like, there is still belief, but it's yeah. wrong. Because there's no doubt. Yeah. It, there's never any doubt that they say that they don't believe. They don't say that they're heathens with no faith. They say that they're unbelievers. So they believe in something, but just not the right, quote-unquote right thing. I think unbelievers, the way, the context that unbeliever is used in is a very interesting sort of milieu because of what it implies it implies a knowledge of belief on both sides but a critical judgment only on one side so to kind of move towards like some cameos you already mentioned the librarian um he he comes in and saves some of the books yeah we're starting to kind of move there uh i was going to ask you what you thought about lutza i i mentioned him earlier but I was curious what you actually thought about this character since he will be an important character in later books. See, I like it with the Discworld because the Discworld starts with the premise that everything is connected, but I have very little time for forced connected universes. It's something that I could talk about for ages, but I won't get into it here. So it makes sense because we've also had plenty of instances of Discworld characters cropping up, but this is the one that it feels explicitly most like a Marvel post credit scene. Fair. You know, where he leaves the guy and the guy is playing chess with death. Although, like, I like that it's not explicitly said that it's death. You know, you can tell basically by him asking, how do the horse things move? Which is the thing he's done before. 
Right, and the the small capital letters. But yeah, he has asked. He he says he doesn't like to play chess with the people who die or who challenge him to a game because he can remember he can never remember how the horsies move. Yeah. So, like, yeah. We also get a weird, honestly, one of the weirdest pseudo cameos that I've ever seen in these books. We have a Dibbler counterpart in Omnia. I love this. Dibbler. Love. Yeah, I love cut me on throat, Dibbler. I love chop me on hand off the blah. Yeah, I love the fact that he's selling things still in a bun. Like, the concept <laughs> of things being in a bun must be some strange novelty that the Discworld has that we don't. Although it reminds me constantly of... It's this kind of, like, famous thought, but it's very much in the film Bulletproof Monk. Which is, why do hot dogs come in packets of ten, but hot dog buns only come in packages of eight? That's a central thing they keep asking in the film. And like, yes, it is probably a very racist film that I haven't watched in a while. But the films The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy and Bulletproof Monk, which I think is Chow Yun-Fat, and I could be wrong, are like just, there's such a strange time. And I really liked them as a kid for just being like weird fucking fun action. Um think it's big i think it's the big the big hot dog industry and the big bun industry colluding against us i was right i was right chow yun fat isn't it as the monk with no name (laughs) i i do find the hot dog versus bun ratios to be profoundly disturbing it's also a question that they ask in mr magorium's wonder emporium fucking love that film it's important very important question uh he asks the mutant that question so I, I also saved one of the other things I wanted to talk about until after we talk about the death sightings. So there were, let me see, I counted one, two, three, four, five, six, seven death sightings in this book. The first death sighting is on page 85 when uh, Frit or Frit dies. And so he is taken by death and he has to go through the Black Desert. And I don't think, this is the first book I think that's really talked about the Black Desert of death. That Sometimes this comes up in some of the books. It will show up in later books as well. This idea that when you die, you have to cross this desert and you have to cross it alone. And all of the sand is black. It's interesting that we're reading this one after, which is abroad, because it, like it paralleled with the mirror dimension that Lily and Esme Weatherwax end up in where, you know, you got to find which one is the correct mirror and either it's, you know, yourself in my reading or in the actual text, which is just like granny Weatherwax picks one and forces reality to bend around that idea. But the fact that like, you know, there's all these mirrors, you have to find the correct one is very similar to you need to walk across an endless desert with just your thoughts. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, you have to do it alone and you have to find the place where the judgment happens. Right. Which is what the Omnians believe. And Pratchett's death is very clear that the that what happens after death largely depends on what you believe in life. But it also sort of depends on other factors as well so the idea is that like for the omnians you have to cross the back black desert and be judged but it's interesting that it's like no it's just interesting that it's like you need to find where the judgment is because like that kind of gives the implication that there's nothing there that you will just walk until you believe 
or until you have come to terms with your own belief in your own life, which is something that Vorbis can never do, which is why he's still cowering by the time that brother dies a hundred years hence, because he's incapable yeah. of getting out of his own head, and so needs brother to lead him. But like, it's a desert. Like in my eyes, this is not like a Dantean vision of hell, where you have Minos and two other judges of hell, and they assign you a. Uh, you know, they send you to a, a circle of hell. This is just a desert that you walk and walk, and it, you know, it has no functional end, but you just get to a point where you've accepted everything that you've done in life, and that's when you pass on. There's nothing in that desert. It's continuous, and you have to sort of figure it out on your own. It's almost like a maze, right? Okay, so I believe it's a Persian myth originally, but this idea that there was a, a king who was obsessed with mazes and would, like make all his guests like come to and like go through his mazes uh kind of like the labyrinth right and there was another king who he invited as like a guest who like got so irritated at this king's like use of mazes that he actually kidnapped this king took him out to the desert and said look this is my maze and left him there like the idea that like the desert itself is almost a maze in that you have to like wander it and find your way out, even though it doesn't traditionally look like a maze. It doesn't have walls or twists and turns, right? But it's still, you're still functionally lost, right? You still have to functionally find your way out. Yeah. All right, there's another death appearance uh, much later on when Private Iklos is killed by Simony, right? Simony betrays Vorbis and the Omnians in Ephebe. He kills Private Iklos in order to get out of the city. Death comes from Private Iklos. I, I think it's really interesting when Terry Pratchett has death come for a character that has never been mentioned before and will never be mentioned again. I think it like underscores the idea that death comes for everybody and that there are these characters like these aren't just like nameless, faceless characters, right? Like they're real people who who, you know, die and who have an idea of what the afterlife is. So like it's like, have I heard of Private Iklos before? No, but death has. Discworld does feel like a very rich and varied internal landscape where death will come for everyone. That's absolutely true. The next death sighting is when the fin of God goes down in the middle of the sudden hurricane brought about by the sea goddess because she's looking for a sacrifice to fulfill her deal with Om for saving Bretha earlier in the book. And so death has a conversation with the captain as the ship goes down. He's actually like at the he death is actually the helmsman of the ship briefly as they go down. And then we get this really cool image of like the ghost of the fin of God sailing through this desert. Right. Like, a, like I love the idea of like a ship sailing through a desert. The captain and Death have this conversation that is very reminiscent of other conversations we've seen where the captain says, where's Vorbis? He survived. Did he? There's no justice. There's just me. So again, classic Death. Yeah, but it's also like he, like he mistakes Death as the helmsman for someone else. But in this one, he's like, are you? And he says explicitly, no. Do you want to guess again? Um, but in this one, he's like, it's weird that death draws the distinction that he's not the helmsman. The next death sighting is when he comes to take Vorbis, who is killed in possibly one of the funnier deaths in the Discworld by the tortoise Om falling out of the sky and hitting him on the head, which is what sparks the belief, right, in, in Om. 
as an entity, but he has this conversation with Vorbis and he says, it's, I really loved this scene because he's like, death was impressed. Very few people managed this, managed to hold on to the shape of their old thinking after death. Death took no pleasure in his job. It was an emotion he found hard to grasp, but there was such a thing as satisfaction. That to me tells me that this is post Reaper Man, right? Like death cares about his job. He does have satisfaction in, in what he is doing. But he tells, he leaves Vorbis in the desert. Vorbis, you know, is obviously ill-equipped for the desert. And Death tells him, you have perhaps heard the phrase that hell is other people. Yes, yes, of course. Death nodded. In time, he said, you will learn that it is wrong. So we get this idea that, like, the desert for Vorbis is very like hell. Yeah, I mean, that's another, like, philosophical thing, right? That's a, a Sartre quote, right? Hell is other people. It is from No Exit. Yeah, hell is other people. Then we also get, just like in, this one reminded me of Witches Abroad, where Simony, Urn, and the Omnian Ephebian soldiers are all underneath the war machine that Urn has created. They're they're all ducking from the 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 shrapnel from the gods fight and they're passing around alcohol and they pass it to death right they well they pass around tobacco first then they pass around the alcohol and you can only tell that it's him because he says thank you in the small caps and then thank you i have to go uh but unlike nanny og and magrat simony does not recognize who he has just been talking to we, like you mentioned earlier, we get the scene where he's playing chess with the abbot of the history monks. Remind me again how the little horse-shaped ones move. And then, of course, the final, the final instance of the final sighting of death happens at the very end of the book when he comes to take Bretha. It's been a hundred years since since Om and Bretha made their agreement, and so death comes to take him. Bretha dies very peacefully, and it seems like in his last act of compassion post-death that he is there to help Vorbis cross the desert. But Bratha has so much compassion for him. Like, he refuses to kill him in the desert, even though he knows Vorbis is evil. Like, he knows that Vorbis is evil. And Vorbis tries to kill him well, several times. So it's it's interesting that we see this last act of empathy. There's also a Death of Rats appearance, like you mentioned. It's on my page 212. It's on the ship where the ship is sinking and the rats, of course, also die. So the Death of Rats is there as well. And he says, squeak, as usual. There were a lot of sort references in this. I counted one, two, three, four, five. I counted six separate references. I stopped counting after the sixth one because... In the last battle, the Sortians are there with the Ephebians and the Gel to attack Omnia. So I didn't, I was like, okay, well, at this point, they're just there. So I'm not going to count this all as separate references. But there are a lot of references to Sort. As we've discussed before with pyramids, Sort is like a neighboring country here. So it makes sense they would be mentioned that many times in the book. I liked that the Gel were there, though, too. Yeah, it seems to be that they've got their shit together, but it's also weird, like, when does this take place? Because Dios was there founding, all, like, when the first founder came and established Jelly Baby and has been there shaping there. And I don't think they would send military to uh, members of farm powers. So it seems maybe that, like, 
pyramids okay so pyramids would take place before any of the events happened small gods and so when dios is sent back in time and as jelly baby goes on under the monarchy or of uh tracy or whoever they appoint in their stead you know that that government would be more willing to send out troops to meddle in the affair of foreign powers yeah, it, it's interesting to me. I, and I guess readers if or listeners, readers of Terry Pratchett, if you have any ideas about when this book falls into place, whether you think it's a time travel thing or if you actually have a timeline, please send us your thoughts. We would be more than happy to talk about it because, yeah, it's very hard to pin down this book. It does seem like like the only it, it does seem like Tracy would send an army. Right. But it doesn't seem likely that Dios would or that an army would even really be able to leave the time polder in a way that would make sense. So yeah, that totally makes sense to me. The first footnote in this happens on page two of my book. This story takes place in desert lands in shades of umber and orange. When it begins and ends is more problematic, but at least one of its beginnings took place above the snow line, thousands of miles away in the mountains around the hub footnote. Or, if you're a believer in Omnianism, the pole. Pretty straightforward footnote. Uh, I think that that footnote is mainly... Because we haven't really talked about Omnianism yet in this book. So it's mainly to indicate to us that Omnianism has a different paradigm, different view of the universe than the rest of the Discworld. I do like the idea of one of its beginnings, though. Like, all stories actually have multiple beginnings. What's your favorite footnote? Is the one from about um, Fasta Benj. I think Fasta Benj is such a funny character. The fact that he has no idea what's going on there. But when the gods explain that there will be... And then, yeah, so when the, the gods explain that there will be no more war. And the footnote, uh, Fasta Benj's people had no word for war. Since they had no one to fight and life was tough. Patang Patang's words had arrived as, Remember when Pacha Moj hit his uncle with Big Rock? Like that. Only more worse. And then they he wonder why would so many people want to hit uh, Pacha Moj's uncle? Like <laughs> He's from a tribe with 51 people and they have a newt god. Like he has no point of reference for what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good footnote. I love that one. It's great. It's absolutely fantastic. I that all of that all the scenes with him were some of my favorites of the last part of this book. I had where they're talking about the Ephebians and their, their election process. The Ephebians believe that every man should have the vote footnote provided he wasn't poor foreign nor disqualified by reason of being mad, frivolous or a woman. This is, we tend to we've talked about this before how people tend to think of Athens as like the founders of democracy and weren't they so enlightened that they had democracy instead of anything else but it turns out that only certain people could vote in Athens and it was actually really hard to be that kind of person you were there was more people who were disqualified from voting than qualified unfortunately that hasn't really changed there are a lot of poor foreign mad frivolous female people who can't vote even in the United States. You know, we we talk a lot about voter suppression and and that kind of thing. And so this footnote particularly it just it, it it's a good footnote. It's a good point to make in the face of democracy that there are actually a lot of people who are disqualified from voting in a democracy. 
So when you say everyone gets a vote, you're not actually talking about everyone. You're talking about the important people. The foundational text of America begins, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are equal, uh, you know, or that God has endowed every person with the rights. The unalienable, God has given to people with certain unalienable rights, the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But yet it took nearly 100 years for the 13th Amendment to be passed. I mean, I think that's true, though, like this idea that like there are a lot of people who have historically been disenfranchised and are still disenfranchised from voting. Like democracy has its own problems with oppression. It's not like the solution to <laughs> to oppression by any means. What was the thing that made you laugh out loud in this book? There's kind of a tie between three things. And I've mentioned um, I've mentioned Fasta Bench. Cut me on. Cut me hand off, uh, de Blas, trying to negotiate with all of his glory and trying to sell him things, you know, oh, and that, oh, he'll make a good profit in the end. I liked that as a pun. And then also when they're talking about lions in the desert, hold on, I'll try and find the actual quote. It's a lot of, when I search the word lions, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of um, millions, billions, and zillions in the text, which I didn't realize. We need it, but there's probably one or two drawbacks. What kind of drawbacks? As in natural hazards, like, well, you know, lion, slightly, slightly lions, only one lion, only one, generally a solitary creature. Most be feared of the old males in hospitable regions by their evil ten cunning and in their extremity have lost all fear of man. Their memory faded, letting go of brother's vocal cords. That kind, brother finished. It won't take any of no notice of us once it's fed, said Om. Yes, they go to sleep. After feeding? Brother looked around at Vorbus, who was slumped against a rock. Feeding, he repeated. It'll be a kindness, said Om. To the lion, yes. You want to use him as bait? He's not going to survive the desert. Anyway, he's done much worse to thousands of people who would be dead for a good cause. A good cause? <laughs> I like it. Yeah, Om's... Uh, pragmatic approach to these things is quite hilarious a lot of times slightly lions so i have two that i i think are are tied for me the first one i love the philosophers and how much they argue in a phoebe i love all the scenes with them but i really love the one where they first meet where bretha first meets them are you all philosophers said bretha the one called zeno stepped forward adjusting the hang of his toga that's right, he said. We're philosophers. We think, therefore we am. Are, said the luckless paradox manufacturer automatically. Zeno spun around. I've just about had it up to here with you, Ibid, he roared. He turned back to Bretha. We are, therefore we am, he said confidently. That's it. Several of the philosophers looked at one another with interest. That's actually quite interesting, said one. The evidence of our existence is the fact of our existence. Is that what you're saying? Shut up, said Zeno, without looking around. <laughs> I thought that was great. Of course, that's a riff on Descartes, but it's I we think I think therefore we am is like one of one of my favorite things. The other one is also a philosophy one. It's Didactylos um, riffing off of Plato. 
Life in this world, he said, is, as it were, a sojourn in a cave. What can we know of reality? For all we see of the true nature of existence is, shall we say, no more than bewildering and amusing shadows cast upon the inner wall of the cave by the unseen blinding light of absolute truth, from which we may or may not do some glimmer of veracity, and we, as troglodyte seekers of wisdom, can only lift our voices to the unseen and say humbly, Go on, do deformed rabbit. It's my favorite. I liked that because anything that makes fun of Plato's The Cave, I think is wonderful. And I liked the, the idea of like a de, of the deformed rabbit shadows. But it's also a reference back to moving pictures when Victor says, you should see my uncle do deformed rabbit. It's my favorite. So there's also like that link back to another Discworld book. What's something that made you think? Uh, I've mentioned it before, but it's the way that uh, Vorbis makes people like him. Yeah, so I, I think one of the ones I had was that um, another one I had was the the thing I mentioned earlier about normal people being able to do incredibly terrible things. The one that I want to read, the one about people. People have reality dampers. It's a popular fact that nine-tenths of the brain is not used, and like most popular facts, it is wrong. Not even the most stupid creator would go to the trouble of making the human head carry around several pounds of unnecessary gray goo if its only real purpose was, for an example, to serve as a delicacy for certain remote tribesmen in unexplored valleys. It is used, and one of its functions is to make the miraculous seem ordinary and turn the unusual into the usual. Because if this was not the case, then human beings faced with the daily wondrousness of everything would go around wearing big stupid grins similar to those worn by certain remote tribesmen who occasionally get raided by the authorities and have the contents of their plastic greenhouses very seriously inspected. They'd say wow a lot and no one would do much work. Gods don't like people not doing much work. People who aren't busy all the time might stop to think. Part of the brain exists to stop this from happening. It is very efficient. It can make people experience boredom in the middle of marvels. I loved that because I think this goes along with what we were saying earlier about how humans have this tendency to turn chaos into stories. This idea of we can't handle the world as it is. So we have to take things that are marvelous and turn them into mundane things, turn them into recognizable things that we can understand. And the idea that you could see something that is an absolute marvel and go, Oh, that's normal is such a human thing to do. There's a different part of the book where he talks about how like we think it's a miracle when a God turns water into wine, but we don't think it's a miracle when grapes grow on a vine like that that plants basically turn sunlight and water into grapes <laughs> so like i i think that's fascinating yeah i think that's quite good and it kind of goes back to my comments on um two flower as a tourist in the disc world where it's like they take these fantasy worlds very much for granted but i live there i never shut the fuck up about it <laughs> yeah exactly exactly all right next episode the Watch is expanding in Men at Arms. We're going back to Ankh-Mor Pork. Also, we read our first Discworld short story, Theater of Cruelty, which ties into Men at Arms. So we're going to be doing what my creative writing teacher in undergrad called a twofer, a two for one. Theater of Cruelty and Men at Arms.
Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? Uh, you can find my shows, Archive Admirers and High Asians, wherever podcasts are gotten. Um, and they're also on, on um, Twitter at Admirers Archive and at Hyper, and then Hyperfixations is on Instagram at HyperfixationsPod. And I'm on Twitter at uh, Spicy Nigel, where I've been, uh, I don't know, recently I was tweeting about how I went to see The Godfather for the first time, 50 years after it came out. I'd never seen the film before, did not know a single thing that happened in the film. You know? In two years' time, I'll watch Godfather Part 2 when it when they do a 50th anniversary screening. I love that. Like, I, I wait for the, the anniversary screenings to experience this. This is like when I went to Titanic on the 100th year anniversary of the Titanic sinking, except for I knew how that movie ended. Hard not to. I've never seen the film Titanic. It's not my favorite. I can see why people like it. It's not my favorite. I'll, I'll just leave it that way. Hmm. <laughs> All right, where can we find you, Tessa? You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog, which is on Twitter at Monkey Backlog, we are currently going through Sam Watches Star Trek, which is our second episode of the week that is under the main Monkey Off My Backlog feed, where me and my partner Sam talk about her experiencing Star Trek for the first time. So I think the one that's about to be released after this episode comes out is the our episode on Star Trek The Motion Picture. Hmm. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club. You can find us on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. Black sand. The light was brilliant, crystalline, in a black sky filled with stars. Ah, there really is a desert. Does everyone guess? said brother. Who knows? And what is at the end of the desert? Judgment. Brother considered this. Which end? Death grinned and stepped aside. What brother had thought was a rock in the sand was a hunched figure, sitting clutching its knees. It looked paralyzed with fear. He stared. Vorbis, he said. He looked at death. But Vorbis died a hundred years ago. Yes, he had to walk it all alone. All alone with himself. If he dared. He's been here for a hundred years. Possibly not. Time is different here. It is... more personal. Ah, you mean a hundred years can pass like a few seconds? A hundred years can pass like infinity. The black-on-black eyes stared imploringly at Brother, who reached out automatically, without thinking, and then hesitated. He was a murderer, said Death, and a creator of murderers, a torturer, without passion, cruel, callous, compassionless. Yes, I know, he's Vorbis, said Brother. Vorbis changed people. Sometimes he changed them into dead people, but he always changed him. That was his triumph. He sighed. But I'm me, he said. Vorbis stood up, uncertainly, and followed Brother across the desert. Death watched them walk away. The end.